Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, season four of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, bringing you evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. I've got a great episode for you all today. Dr. Ben Bickman, PhD, professor of pathophysiology and biomedical scientist whose research agenda focuses on the molecular mediators of obesity. Ben is also the author of Why We Get Sick, the hidden epidemic at the root cause of most chronic disease and how to fight it. Fantastic chat here with Ben today. I really love the way that he breaks down very, very complex topics into simple terms. And in this episode, you'll hear us talk all about why our grandparents' generation got sick versus why we get sick today. Why insulin resistance is at the root of most chronic conditions and the connection between hyperinsulinemia and weight gain. We'll talk about how exercise and fitness impacts the metabolic profiles of NFL elite linemen, offensive and defensive, compared to the general population. We'll also talk about why insulin medication for type 2 diabetes is a short-sighted approach, the connection between insulin resistance and brain function, as well as talk about some simple blood tests that you can use to assess you or your client's degree of insulin resistance as well as a whole lot more. Uh, Really, really great episode here with Ben. Always enjoy his insights on uh, on such a complex topic. This episode is sponsored by Athlete Evolution, performance nutrition education for athletes, coaches, and practitioners. The first edition of the Performance Nutrition Foundations course kicked off November 1st this year, and we sold out. We've got practitioners from 12 different countries from around the world, including elite athletes and practitioners from multiple professional sports. So if you'd like to join the next group, the pre-sale list is already going on for January 2021. It's now open. So head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org and sign up for the pre-sale list to be the first to hear about when it drops and get a nice discount as well. If you're a strength coach, nutritionist, athlete, personal trainer, or practitioner out there, and you want to upgrade your performance, nutrition skills, and earn some CE credits along the way, then definitely check out that pre-sale list over at athleteevolution.org. Fantastic. Season 4, episode number 18 with Dr. Ben Bickman. Enjoy. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time today. Hey, Mark. I appreciate it. I, thanks for reaching out. Always happy to chat with a fellow Canadian. <laughs> Terrific. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to talking all about why we get sick today um, and, of course, the role of insulin in this whole story. But before mm-hmm. we dive into this, I find it fascinating to go back in time a little bit, Ben. And, you know, if we think about our, not even just our grandparents, our great-grandparents, you know, 100 years ago, you know, maybe if that's a starting point, why did people get sick then? And then we can move into into today. Yeah. Yeah. So once upon a time, we got sick through infectious diseases. And and then it was the birth of 
molecular biology, really, in a way, to help us understand these microorganisms that were infecting people, the virus or the bacteria, in most instances, in most instances and then uh, how to treat that. And that really got, especially with regards to bacterial infectious diseases, with the discovery of penicillin, um, we had this very profound shift in, in why we get sick. It ceased being infectious diseases. And then it became these non-infectious chronic diseases. Uh, although at our current moment in, in time, we have this, of course, infectious pandemic mm -hmm. with COVID-19. And uh, frankly, it's, it's helped us realize that some of the same much of the conversation that you and I are going to have in our time together, looking at the metabolic origins of these non-infectious chronic diseases, it also, in fact, is is very timely because these same metabolic concerns actually rear their ugly head uh, in, with regards to this infectious, this viral disease that everyone's Absolutely. afraid of at the moment. So I, I used to say that um, understanding metabolic health is necessary for non-infectious diseases, but now I have to change that tune a bit because even with, with certain infectious diseases, uh, metabolic health matters as well. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable and the advancements of science and medicine over the last century in terms of a capacity to, to be able to cure all these infectious diseases and then to think we've gotten to this point now where you know these chronic diseases of lifestyle are Yes, are now killing more people than than infectious ones, as you mentioned, notwithstanding COVID, which does have the, you know, really interesting connection of of obviously increased risk with folks who are struggling with their metabolic health, and so, you know, maybe a good place to start this discussion off is to really just define insulin resistance to get everyone on the same page. Could you? Yeah. Could you give us a definition? Yeah. Yeah. So I do. I, I certainly make the case. That in in, uh, in my book and as a professional career, that insulin resistance is the, at, at the root of certainly all metabolic um, disease, but also virtually every chronic disease as well. So insulin resistance is this state in the body where it's really uh, a combination of two phenomena where one is that insulin isn't working the same way at certain cells in the body, and then two insulin levels are elevated. So the, the person is experiencing a hyperinsulinemia. And that first point is important with this sort of se uh, selective um, response. Some of the body's cells aren't responding the same way they used to to insulin. And, and what's important there in that idea is that literally every single cell in the body has insulin receptors. So in other words, every cell in the body is built to respond to insulin in some way. And of course, there are so many different types of cells. It's no surprise that each different cell will respond to insulin in a different way, doing something different. Mm -hmm. uh, but with insulin resistance, again, um, although I've said this now a couple times, it's Insulin isn't working the same way at some of these cells. Something is compromised in what insulin is trying to do. And then when we combine that with the fact that insulin levels are much higher than normal, it really starts to paint the full picture because the, the body's cells that are still responding to insulin perfectly well, they're now responding to too much insulin. And so what was a normal response before is now a hyperactive response. And the combination of this sort of selective responsiveness is really what is is the, at the heart of explaining how insulin resistance is so fundamental to so many diseases. Absolutely, and if we, you know, 
then when we think about obviously type 2 diabetes we think insulin resistance so the all the way to yeah. the end of the spectrum and of course today it, unfortunately i mean we've got two-thirds of the populations and whether it's canada the us the uk classified as overweight or obese and so you know at what point in this spectrum does this start to take root and is it impacting anyone who's, who's struggling with with weight gain yeah uh, yes absolutely if someone has if someone's starting to gain weight now that alone isn't going to be a distinguishing factor because there are people who can actually get fat and and stay very insulin sensitive so obesity itself even obesity isn't necessarily going to be uh, a slam dunk identifier although it, it very very often will but if someone has is overweight if they have more fat than they know they should and they have another problem like elevated triglycerides in their blood or elevated blood pressure um, uh, and or even you know slightly elevated glucose then that starts to become a concern when you when you combine that excess weight with some other if evidence of poor health then it's a much more definitive opportunity to diagnose the problem as insulin resistance and of course to flip that around if someone has elevated blood pressure and and you know steadily climbing glucose levels or infertility or fatty liver disease you know or, or many many other problems and again that can happen in the absence of overt weight gain you know the person may mm -hmm. look lean but but uh, in that specific instance they actually may be well on their way uh, to to they're having profound insulin resistance you just wouldn't know it by looking at them and this becomes particularly problematic as we try to view insulin resistance uh, in the in the global context that it deserves some ethnicities like those particularly of asian ethnicities chinese uh, they will not show their weight gain very quickly or very readily. In other words, a very modest increase in weight gain on a on a on a say a Chinese man or a man of Chinese ethnicity background, it will it will start to impact his metabolic health much sooner than say a Caucasian European. You know, like the countries you mentioned, like mm -hmm. UK, Canada, US. So different ethnicities are are more sensitive to fat gain than others, and. Uh, and and so we, even though you know the the, the out the outset of this moment of this conversation, you asked sort of about weight gain. It can happen in the absence of weight gain, so or obvious weight gain. And so we can't always peg the diagnosis to just how fat a person is, appears to be. For sure, and you know we talk about this these chronic diseases, you know, heart disease, obviously the number one killer, um, and a strong link there to insulin resistance. Can you talk about? how insulin resistance starts to influence our cardiovascular health? Yeah, yeah, that is the low-hanging fruit. So uh, I like that you're starting with that as one of the key concepts because most people with insulin resistance will die of heart disease. That's typically what's going to get them in the end. It's not the insulin resistance per se. It's going to be the heart disease. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, the, one, of the, one of the strongest risk factors for heart disease is blood pressure. If someone has hypertension, they are several times more likely to have a cardiovascular event like a heart attack and subsequently die from that heart attack. Um, so, uh, and insulin has uh, a powerful control over what the body does um, with, with body volume and with the diameter of blood vessels. So generally, it's, it's effective to look at blood pressure through the lenses, uh, through two lenses. One is blood volume, 
and the other is the size of the blood vessels or the diameter. You know, imagine if we were looking down the length of a tube, is the tube wider or have a higher diameter or is it narrower? So let's start with the first concept of blood volume. When insulin is elevated, as it is with insulin resistance, it increases another hormone. It forces this other hormone called aldosterone to be elevated. It won't let it go down, even if it wants to. And when aldosterone is elevated, aldosterone signals to the kidneys to keep in salt and water. Mm-hmm. And so even though the kidneys want to be getting rid of this as blood pressure climbs, normally as blood pressure is going up, aldosterone would go down, allowing the kidneys to get rid of these things, but insulin won't let it happen. So the kidneys are continuing to reabsorb salt and water and keep the blood volume higher than it would normally be. And of course, as volume goes up, pressure goes up. Just imagine like we were, we're filling a balloon with more water. That's what we're forcing in this situation. And then that problem is compounded by the second, um, namely the diameter of the blood vessels. When insulin is working well, it will flow through blood vessels and tell those blood vessels to dilate. So they will get bigger. And of course, as that gets bigger, the the volume of the blood vessel, the diameter, the pressure would go down. Um, But it doesn't happen. As those blood vessels become insulin resistant, insulin can no longer induce that vasodilation, that, that dilation of the blood vessels. And thus, a blood vessel that should be dilating stays narrower or stays more constricted. That is that is evidence of the insulin resistance. So we have those two combined really create the fundamental cause of, of hypertension in almost all instances of hypertension. That's why I, li- I mentioned that one at the beginning of our discussion. If someone has high blood pressure, it is extremely likely to be a result of insulin resistance. Now, not always, you know, like you can take a perfectly healthy person And they may have elevated blood pressure in a day, and that is very often a result of poor sleep. But if we're talking about chronic elevated blood pressure, you know, chronic true hypertension, that is very often a result of insulin resistance. And if we then if we stay on this this area here and and talk about we've got this you know population or or client who's who's overweight and has high blood pressure, and if we think of blood glucose levels being persistently and chronically elevated as well, you know, how does that then tie into just the quality of those vessels in terms of if we're talking inflammation, oxidative stress, Mm -hmm. how does that fit into the picture? Yeah, yeah. So when we do combine the insulin resistance with the elevated glucose, like we start to see, of course, in type 2 diabetes, now we've added another pathological dimension. So elevated glucose does cause small vessel damage and even perhaps large vessel damage, which contributes to the poor blood flow and the and the subsequent ulcers that we see in type 2 diabetes. When uh, And there's likely two mechanisms. You'd mentioned inflammation, and that's very appropriate. When glucose is elevated in the blood, it can combine with amino acids in the blood and create molecules called advanced glycation end products, or AGE, or AGEs. And these AGEs, advanced glycation end products, will then bind receptors on the, uh, on, on the blood vessel wall cells, these endothelial cells, stimulating or activating inflammation in literally in the wall of the blood vessel. So that's a very known phenomenon. And then a second one is independent of inflammation, but it's nevertheless dangerous to the blood vessels. When glucose is chronically elevated, the cell essentially is pulling in more glucose than it needs to metabolize. 
And when you look at these blood cells, they don't really have a capacity to store glucose as glycogen like the muscle or the liver does. And so some of this glucose is converted into a molecule called sorbitol. And sorbitol sounds familiar because it's something that we will put in as a sweetener mm -hmm. in certain molecules, in certain foods. Part of the reason it's a non-caloric sweetener is that it is, is membrane impermeable. It will not pass across membranes, which is why you eat it and it stays in your guts. It will not get absorbed into your body. Well, the same thing becomes a problem in this case as the glucose is pulled into the endothelial cells along the blood vessels. It converts into sorbitol within the cell. And as you have more and more sorbitol accumulating within a cell, it creates something called an osmotic gradient, or basically it starts forcing water into the cell and the cells start to swell, like literally physically starts to swell to the point that it can actually burst as if you were filling a water wow. balloon to full and burst. And that can cause damage of those small blood vessels like the capillaries as well. And Ben, how, how important then, you know, we look at, again, just the general population and sometimes like to co compare and contrast between, you know, an athlete or professional athlete. And in this instance, I would think of, you know, an offensive or defensive lineman in football who has, you know, the muscularity and aerobic fitness that when we look at their profiles, despite being, you know, carrying more fat mass, particularly around the midsection, you know, the meta profile, metabolic profile looks, looks terrific. And um, for the most part and, mm -hmm. and when we look at the general population you know if we if we if we don't have a level of fitness if there's a lack of activity and exercise you know we really start to see an acceleration of everything we've talked about here so can you talk about the role of, yeah. of aerobic fitness and how that can be a part of the solution in, in some of these scenarios yeah so i i, I think this is such a neat point um, and just thinking on the fly here, I would say that when we look at I, I bet there's probably a pretty big distinction between those um, same players, you know, the big football players on the offensive and defensive line, the linemen, when you compare like high school level to college 100%. level to professional level, yeah. I would I would be certain that part of what um, predicates whether the athlete is good enough to move on is that that is a body that can get fatter and stay healthier as opposed to most of the high school kids that play linemen. They're just unfortunately – fat and unhealthy um and, and it's it's only those ones that have the ability to store more fat and maintain good insulin sensitivity that are able to be kind of fatter and stronger and thus move on up through the ranks going to college and then to professional um so a distinction between those two and mark i'm not sure if this was where you intended it to take it to go but i'm gonna i'm gonna go anyway yeah uh, part of the difference is probably that the majority of the, you know those those fatter linemen high school kids that aren't healthy and that aren't going to move on in their in their career despite their best efforts they're probably getting fat and insulin resistant and as the body becomes insulin resistant it does compromise muscle growth insulin defends muscle I, I I think it's more accurate to say it that way insulin doesn't necessarily promote um, skeletal muscle protein synthesis. Although it's certainly relevant to it. You need insulin there. Mm -hmm. But spiking insulin doesn't appear to facilitate that. And I say that with some degree of confidence because we know in adults, when you give an adult after workout a protein load, there will be an expected increase in muscle protein synthesis. When you give them uh, protein and carbohydrate, you get no additive effect. There's nothing beneficial about increasing the carbohydrate and the insulin 
following that workout. It doesn't have an additive effect. So back to my point, insulin um, doesn't really need to be spiked to promote muscle protein synthesis, but it is necessary to defend muscle protein synthesis. So it defends the protein that the muscle has already made. But if you're insulin resistant, you've lost that protective effect. Insulin can't protect the muscle as well. So in these high school kids that are linemen and fat, um, they uh, the ones that get washed out are likely the ones who are, are sick because of their fat, mm-hmm. as opposed to the, the people that can become elite, but that is a subset of the population, as we both know. That is a very rare achievement to be able to go on to those levels. Those are the guys who can be fat and still be insulin sensitive and metabolically healthy, and that very likely boils down to the nature of their fat cells. In other words, um, is the fat cell sick or is the fat cell healthy despite being, you know, having more fat? And on the sick side of things, that is when fat tissue is growing, like the overall tissue, you know, the belly's fatter and bigger and bouncier um, because the individual fat cells themselves have grown. In other words, they have hypertrophied. And that's, of course, a term that any of your athletes would know when we think about muscle cells. Um, yep, the sure. muscle grows because it hypertrophies. But that is, that's a good thing in the muscle. It's not a good thing in fat cells. A hypertrophic fat cell becomes insulin resistant. And that's typically where it starts. If someone has insulin resistant, it's very often going to be because the fat cells became insulin resistant first because of genetics and partly diet, they grew through hypertrophy. And in contrast, we have some people in the population, it's a minority, where they are able to continue to continually recruit new fat cells. And so they have, when a fat cell starts to get a little big, they before it gets too big, it kind of recruits a new fat cell to help share the load then that fat cell can start to get a little fat. And so no fat cell ever gets too big. And in so doing, they stay very insulin sensitive. And so insulin is in control and the muscles can continue to grow and be strong and defend their protein. So uh, 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 probably at the root of uh, at least one of the differences between the, the high school linemen and the elite level linemen is the degree to which their fat cells undergo hypertrophy or hyperplasia, which is the term to describe uh, a higher number of, of cells. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, in particular as well, once those careers come to an end, as those, you know, outliers, as we talk about those, those elite linemen become deconditioned and stop the aerobic exercise and the resistance training and whatnot, and start to lose muscle mass, then a lot of what you described or some of the, those downstream effects, negative effects start to take shape and um, yeah, yep, that's a that's an excellent point. In fact, you're bringing it back around to the point you were kind of, I think, hoping I'd make earlier. Yeah, when you when you are working a muscle, you um, Im- immediately you have immediate improvements in insulin sensitivity. And part of that is because muscle is such a consumer of glucose. Muscle eats glucose exceedingly well. And so if someone has not only more muscle, but they're working it more often, mm-hmm. uh, then insulin and glucose levels are much more likely to stay in control over the long term. And then, of course, as those muscles stop working, um, then all of a sudden you've lost that glucose sink, that glucose disposal. Now, glucose is staying elevated for longer, and that means insulin is going to stay elevated for longer. And then you've certainly started flipping the switch to, to, towards illness. 
Yeah, it's a tricky one when they don't adjust the fuel intake after that uh, expenditure really shifts in, in post-career. And, and and then, you know, you touched on there, obviously, the fat cells enlarging. And of course, if we shift gears back to the general population, someone who's diabetic and obese, taking insulin, you know, I've heard you talk about the effects of insulin on fat cells and to that point of enlargement. Could you talk a bit about that and how it then trickles down into these hypoxic states that then influence how, how well yeah. that uh, fat cell works? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm thrilled you're bringing that up. Um, yes, yeah, so insulin is an absolutely essential signal for, a, for fat tissue to grow. So when you look at the like sick fat person versus the paradoxically healthy or relatively healthy, metabolically healthier fat person, um, what, what they have in common is that insulin will be elevated. Um, and, and insulin, again, is what's essential to telling a fat cell to grow. <clears throat> uh, with So whether it's growing through hypertrophy or hyperplasia, insulin would have been relevant to both of those instances of growth. And then there would be some other kind of fine-tuning or other variables that would have determined whether it was through hypertrophy or hyperplasia, the sick way of getting fatter or the healthier way of getting fatter. But in the case of insulin stimulating fat cells toward hi towards hypertrophic growth, part of why that hypertrophic or really fat fat cell becomes sick is that it, it essentially starts to reach the physical limits of, of its size and its proximity to capillaries or the blood vessels. Those capillaries, the blood vessels that actually flow through the tissues, including fat tissue, that is the, a cell has to be close enough to, to that capillary to exchange gases and to ex exchange uh, uh, nutrients. And so, for example, it needs to be close enough to give its CO2 off into the blood and to take in oxygen. It needs to be clo close enough to share its fatty acids with the, uh, with the blood to be used and to pull in new fat or pull in new glucose. So it needs to be close enough to a blood vessel to, well, to survive. When, a, when the fat cells are getting too fat, it's, they're getting further and further away from blood vessels. They're relatively deficient in blood vessels, and that is not a phenomenon we see with hyperplasia. and hyperplastic fat growth, there's still an enrichment of capillaries. The cells are never too far from blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And so part of what the fat cell is doing to survive is it's releasing these pro-inflammatory hormones called cytokines. Some of these cytokines are actually essential for promoting the growth of new blood vessels. One in particular is called vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, VEGF. And it, it is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, but in the case of the fat cell, it's, it's doing this, it's releasing it in order to try to increase the blood flow. It ultimately fails um, at, at this attempt but it's, it's almost like we, we have to look at that and kind of be forgiving of the fat cell, you know. And I appreciate yeah. that I'm being a little silly in how I'm describing this. But it, it's basically like the fat cell is becoming – to... it is. It's becoming insulin resistant, um, the, the fat fat cell. It's becoming insulin resistant in order to try to stop its growth. It's basically telling insulin, you want me to continue to grow, but I can't. And so I have to become insulin resistant to you. Otherwise, I'm going to explode. I'm going to be too fat. And, and so I'm going to become insulin resistant. And in so doing, it starts leaking fat when it shouldn't because insulin would normally tell a fat cell to not break down its fat. So this fat cell that's hypertrophic is leaking fat. And at the same time, 
it's leaking these pro-inflammatory cytokines in an effort to increase blood flow, again, in an effort to survive. And so as the fat cell is trying, the hypertrophic fat cell is trying to survive, it's leaking free fatty acids and pro-inflammatory cytokines, both of which start to result in insulin resistance in other tissues like the muscle and the liver, the, the, the blood vessels, the brain. And that's where you have basically the fat cell is the first domino to fall with regards to insulin resistance and the other tissues are the subsequent dominoes that that first one bumps into. Yeah, I mean, it would seem obviously that um, you know, using insulin as a therapy should be sort of an acute-based or a transitory medication that's used to try to get somebody out of the state versus what we often see, which is people who are taking insulin, you know, years and years and decades. Yeah, yeah in fact, I, I'll go even further than I'll be less diplomatic than you are. <laughs> I'll be distinctly un-Canadian for a moment. Nice, go for um, it. And, and be less diplomatic. Uh, my U.S. roots are rubbing off on me now. Awesome. Um, the, uh, I think it's terrible. In fact, I think it's it's a horrible clinical practice to give a type 2 diabetic insulin therapy. If it's truly type 2 diabetes, insulin is still elevated. Even, it, even in the instances when it starts to come down a bit, it never comes down to normal. It's always elevated over normal. And you are uh, – and you're giving more of the molecule that's causing – at least much of the problem. So let me kind of back up. Much of insulin resistance is a result of elevated insulin itself. So I'll flip that around. Increased in chronically elevated insulin causes, at least is part of the cause of insulin resistance. We can determine this in humans and we can determine it in animals and even cells, actual just individual cells. When there's too much insulin, the cells start to become resistant to insulin. And in the case of the type 2 diabetic, the body has become so resistant to insulin that insulin can no longer stimulate the muscle to pull in enough glucose, and so glucose levels start to climb. And that's when we detect the problem as type 2 diabetes. But that's, it's important to, then not, to not forget how it started, which was elevated insulin. Too often in conventional medicine, we only look at the glucose level and we have no regard for what insulin levels are. We have no idea. And we don't even care in conventional medicine. And thus, with that glucose-centric paradigm in mind, it's not surprising that the clinician, the physician, the well-meaning, well-intentioned, yep. will be only looking at the glucose and will say, well, your glucose is elevated, so let's just push your insulin up, little realizing that the person's already swimming in a sea of insulin and by giving them more insulin, you do lower their glucose, but you are making them more and more insulin resistant. That's why you see that the dose of insulin has to continually go up over time. And you make them fatter. They'll gain about 20 pounds, uh, you, know, you know, over 10 kilos in the first six months usually. And, and you make them sicker. Uh, the more insulin that the type 2 diabetic is taking, uh, you know, at these higher levels to, to aggressively lower glucose, they become significantly more likely to die from cancer, heart disease, and Alzheimer's disease. So by, by treating the type 2 diabetic with insulin, we make them fatter and sicker, and we kill them faster. That is proof positive that this is not a glucose disease because all of that happens with normal glucose. It's because we are pushing the insulin to ludicrous levels in order to keep the glucose in check. But we do. We keep the glucose in check 
and they die faster. It's because that's an insulin problem. And treating type 2 diabetes with insulin is like treating alcoholism with another glass of wine. We are giving them too much of the very thing that's causing the problem. Yeah, probably like even a shot of whiskey, isn't it? I mean, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it is tragic. It's, it's really a... Um, especially when patients come back and say to their docs, you know, I'm gaining weight. Isn't that the opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be yes. losing weight to make this better. And, and, and the thing you gave me, the medication you've given me is, seems to be making things worse. So it's, it's, it's a tragic thing. And you, you know, you talked about the brain there, obviously we've talked about multiple chronic conditions. And of course now we see rates of dementias and Alzheimer's climbing to, to record levels and going to be continually climbing well into the 2050s and beyond. You know, where's, oh, where's the connection there between insulin resistance and, and how the brain functions? Yeah, it's, it's quite a fascinating connection, frankly. So typically when we look at what insulin does, uh, it's, it's very common that we, we really describe insulin through, uh, through its effects on glucose. And that's okay. That is certainly much of uh, an important feature of insulin, but it's also a little unfair because insulin does so many other things too. But let's just go with that one. One of insulin's main effects is to lower glucose. And it does that by pushing the glucose or helping the glucose move from the blood into specific tissues, most especially the muscle. Insulin helps the muscle take in glucose as well as fat cells. Insulin helps fat cells take in glucose. But the brain also has some of these same insulin-dependent glucose transporters, and thus insulin is at least partly responsible for some of the glucose that the brain is taking in. And the brain uses glucose very well, of course, but as the brain becomes insulin-resistant, you now have lost some of that glucose uptake into the brain. But the brain still has its same high metabolic demand. Indeed, the brain is a high metabolic rate organ. It is a very active organ, and glucose provides much of that fuel. And most people, it's the only available fuel. And we can elaborate on that more in a moment. But in the case of insulin resistance, the brain now can't get enough glucose to meet its energetic demands. There is this energetic gap, you know, where uh, where there's this this space. Um, between, you know, this differential where, where the glucose uptake ought to be versus where it is. And that little energetic gap is something we can detect in Alzheimer's disease. Also, we detect it in depression. We detect it in migraine disorders. We detect it in epilepsy, with seizures. These, a lot of these neurological disorders, what they have in common is that there is this phenomenon referred to as brain glucose hypometabolism. So the brain isn't metabolizing glucose at the same rate that it was before. And it's likely because, certainly in the case of dementia, there's a degree of insulin resistance in the brain. And that is why it is so commonly seen together, disease, like uh, uh, insulin resistance and Alzheimer's disease, to the point that many refer to Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes, mm-hmm. or they, which is, I don't love that term. Because it makes you think that there's some totally new form of diabetes when the reality yeah. is it's just insulin resistance of the brain. That's what we're seeing in, in, in Alzheimer's disease. And those and, and the data really bear out. In fact, we have under review right now a manuscript where we studied human brains, so of course post-mortem, from normal, non-demented individuals and people who had Alzheimer's disease. And we detected broad 
reductions in the demented brains with regards to genes that were involved in, in glucose uptake and glucose use. So there was a clear reduction in these genes and their protein products involved in glucose use in those brains. However, there was no reduction in ketone use and ketone uptake. And that becomes important because that energetic gap that I mentioned earlier, it can be filled by the other primary fuel for the brain, and that is ketones. And so if someone who has Alzheimer's disease bumps up their ketones, you can improve brain function. You can detect this in real time. You can have them do some tests to determine the, their mental fitness and detect that it's very poor, unfortunately. Put them into ketosis, increase their ketones, have them do these tests again, and now all of a sudden their mental fitness has improved. They, they, they perform better. They're able to communicate better. They're able to perform tasks like getting dressed better. And all of this is published case studies in the, in the biomedical literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, most people um, are eating so much um, starchy, sugary foods so often that their insulin is chronically elevated. And that means the brain has no choice. It's basically like we're telling the brain, you can only use glucose because insulin is elevated. And so insulin is demanding that that glucose be the only available fuel because if insulin is elevated, we cannot make ketones. We can only make ketones when insulin is low. Most people never really give the brain a break. They're never in ketosis because they eat so much of the wrong things so often that the chronically elevated insulin is ensuring there's never sufficient ketones to feed the brain. Yeah, it's it's a, it's amazing, isn't it? The prevalence of obviously processed food and snack food, and of course everyone's staying up later and watching yep. Netflix until midnight or two a.m. And as you mentioned, we're snacking throughout the day, throughout the night. We're getting up in the morning, first thing that goes in. Unfortunately, yep. for a lot of people, it's quite a high energy, high carbohydrate meal. And if you're struggling with glucose control or metabolic health, and that's unfortunately not the best approach. And just as you mentioned, it's almost like the party never stops. The the music doesn't ever stop. The lights don't go off. And so this constant, you know, fuel coming in and, and, and this resistance taking root and it's seemingly paradoxical to have this sort of excess of energy yet the, the tissues not being able to take it up. Um, yeah, well said. Well said. I agree with that sentiment completely. And to your point around the ketones, I mean, obviously using a dietary approach to get a client, a patient into this state is, is ideal. But, you know, as a stopgap, using a, a supplement, supplemental ketones, would we see similar effects to you know, for that Alzheimer's, that dementia brain that you talked about previously? Yes, 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 you do. In fact, some of the case studies I just mentioned actually relied on exogenous ketones to just push the person into a deeper state of ketosis very rapidly. And in the case of dementia, there might be some true utility there because it might be very difficult to get an Alzheimer's patient to cooperate. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the pathology is that they be they may become a little combative and, and you know, they, they aren't going to, you know, necessarily be happy about a dietary change if, if you know, anyone ever is. Um, and, and so, yeah, the use of exogenous ketones in, in those cases could be uh, very warranted and very effective. Yeah, it's always nice to be able to use something as a, you know, to, to achieve the outcome in, in a short manner whilst you're working on, as you mentioned, the more tricky adherence and compliance things like diet, exercise, lifestyle. It's great to have something in there that we can be applied right away. And, you know, if we zoom back out to 30,000 feet here, Ben, and look at, you know, weight gain, poor metabolic health being at the root of all this, and, 
you know, a few years back, I had Dr. Nicola Guest on the podcast and talking about how, you know, for type 2 diabetes, reversal weight loss was about 90% of the whole story. And so when we look at strategies to help to offset this, you know, obviously weight loss has got to be front and center, but we also see in terms of type 2 diabetes, low-carb diets, potentially offering more benefits than some other types of nutrition strategies. You know, can you enlighten us with, with some of the the methods that we could employ to, to better support metabolic health? Yeah, yeah. I, in fact, this is at the heart of my entire conversion that I underwent over the last 10 years. Um, I was, uh, in fact, just to put some background here, 10 years ago, I was as much opposed to a low-carb diet as anyone. I was very dogmatic in my approach, and I... I had not seen any data to suggest it was helpful whatsoever. And then it was as I started really diving into insulin resistance and wanting to understand the causes more, I increasingly appreciated the role of chronically elevated insulin in insulin resistance. And even confirmed studies in my own lab um, highlighting that, that role. And, uh, and so acknowledging the role of elevated insulin as a driver of insulin resistance, I then acknowledged the, the, I guess, logical consequence of that, which would be that then reducing insulin will be part of the therapy, um, the therapeutic for that. And, and that is what first led me to wanting to start searching the, the literature for the efficacy of low-carbohydrate diets and even ketogenic I couldn't believe it when I started looking at ketogenic. I thought ketogenic diets were, you know, like four-letter curse words. I, uh, but I, I thought I am a scientist. I need to be academically honest and open to exploring this. But I would want anyone to know that I, I, I did not. I don't have any skin in the game here. I truly came to the conclusion that low-carbohydrate diets were superior, based exclusively on the available data. And the absolute reality is low-carbohydrate diets lower insulin more effectively than low-fat diets. Even if it's low-fat, low-calorie, the low-carbohydrate diet, even if it's calorie unrestricted, will lower insulin more and lower fat mass more. In fact, often significantly more. In this, now, I will, having said all that, and I, I want to state that with an exclamation mark, um, mm-hmm. that is the reality of the situation. Uh, when, however, there is some nuance, there is one study that actually took this a, a step further and looked at the effects of low-fat and low-carb diets in people that were separated based on their insulin sensitivity. The insulin-sensitive people responded marginally to both and equally to both, modest changes in low-carb, modest changes on low-fat. However, the insulin-resistant people had no response to the low-fat diet, and nothing changed, but they had powerful, substantial responses to the low-carb diet. And so if we look at someone who's worried about insulin resistance or has it or has full-blown type 2 diabetes, without a doubt, the low-carb diet is going to be the single most relevant approach. This is even increasingly acknowledged by the American Diabetes Association and that is a big step because these governing bodies don't make changes very easily. And the fact that the American Diabetes Association has now explicitly stated that low-carbohydrate diets are effective dietary interventions, that's a big win for those of us that have been beating that drum for years. And th- indeed, there have been people beating the drum far longer than I have been. But my, my evolution 
in appreciating the role of low-carb diets came explicitly because of the data being so overwhelmingly in favor of this, this idea that controlling carbs is the key to controlling insulin, and that in turn is the key to controlling insulin resistance. Yeah, it's a great point in terms of those individuals who are more down that insulin resistance uh, pathway or down that road per se, you know, because when we look at weight loss diets, I mean, if we're matching protein intake and caloric intake, we see virtually the same weight loss in that group that you mentioned who are sort of the insulin sensitive group, the general population. And so, you know, whatever approach helps with weight loss, we tend to see benefit, but there's going to be that subset, just as you mentioned here, that, that really when we're struggling with this insulin root of the problem it is it's, as you mentioned that the evidence seems to really point to an enhanced benefit to be able to reduce carbohydrate intake yeah that's right in fact even if i uh, if i'm accurate in speculating i wouldn't be surprised if some of your audience um sort of came to you because of your background in athletics and sports um when, when you talk about these athletes they have so much more wiggle room you know than the kind of overweight middle-aged sedentary person that i'm thinking of um, which oh, is sure, which is yeah. sadly the, the majority of people these days. Most people would fit into that ladder, but I, you know, often I'll have very healthy, fit, athletic people say, "Oh well, you know, I, I go low carb and I just don't do as well." And I tell them, well, "Why the hell are you doing that? You know, you, you're you, this is a person. I mean, I got a buddy who trains for Ironman triathlons. Now, why anyone would ever want to do that is beyond me. But, <laughs> it's a group. but he does it, and Sadistic. he can eat he can eat over 200 grams of carbs per day and still be in deep ketosis the whole day. And it's because, which only happens, of course, if your insulin is low, and it's because he is just burning so much of that glucose in his, you know, two-hour rides in, in, or whatever else he's doing in, in two-hour swim and three-hour run um, that that it's he can get away with it. Now, fortunately, it'll probably cost him his marriage at some point, but, <laughs> but, sure. but he's, he's able – he has so much – metabolic flexibility just by nature back to your one of your points earlier just by nature of the demands he's placing on his body and the energy demands that the muscle has he can chew through that glucose like gangbusters and maintain a very high degree of insulin sensitivity yeah it it is amazing to see in, in various sports and you know basketball in particular especially with elite and professional players i mean you got guys might be having 500 grams in a day and it's uh you know with with the nature of the training and you know, changes the directions and then caloric expenditure. It is amazing to see that when you look at their metabolic profiles, they're, they're still terrific. And so it's yeah, great. And such an important point to have that context. Cause again, that same diet with the general population would just be a total, total disaster. And, and Ben, if we're trying to assess this, you know, if practitioners, docs, you know, if we should be looking more into someone where someone fits on that scale of insulin resistance, it's, it's not as, simple a, a, a test in terms of no availability you know is, is home ir you know just getting that fasting insulin and glucose sufficient enough are we still going to be missing a swath of people or or what is it? is there a practical test that's mm-hmm. more favored at the moment what would you say yeah well and what a great question so yeah as, as we've sort of been instilling this healthy respect with insulin resistance into any of your listeners i would love i mean how wonderful if they leave this thinking all right i want to know where I stand. Yeah, if someone can get their fasting insulin, which itself is a barrier, um, where it depends on their insurance and it depends on the the, the program, you know, in the UK, is the, does the NHS cover it? And it often won't, I believe. Or in Canada, it's kind of similar. So it's, yep. it's what, what are the, there are true barriers to just measuring insulin 
And that's partly because it's just been overlooked for so long. It's never made its way into the kind of lofty level of, of being warrant, you know, being a, one of the outcomes on every blood test. Which always blows just, me away, Ben, because oftentimes yeah. you see the tests that are being run and various hormones and everything else, and the cost of those tests they're running are yes. double what insulin is. And so you think, geez, yes. why don't we just yes. make this a normal part of the screen? Oh, I, I totally agree. But let's just say if someone yeah. can get their insulin measured, they want to be around – now I'm going to try to try to remember what this would be in picomoles, like in the Canadian and the UK units. Um, it's going to be around, you know, in the U.S. They want to be around six microunits per mil, mm-hmm. and in the in the in the metric system, they, they want to be around. I think it's kind of high twenties of picomoles yep. um, per liter um, with regards to their insulin. But but if you can't get your insulin measured, thank heavens there's a surrogate, and that is looking at the triglycerides to HDL ratio. And, and thankfully, those are two numbers that have made the cut. They're on the first. First string here. First page, they're, yeah. Yeah, they're on every single blood test. You're going to get your lipid panel. So take that triglyceride number and divide it by your HDL number. And if that is less than 1.5, then you're doing you're doing well. You're laughing. If it's above 1.5, that's a reason for concern. That that could that could mean insulin resistance. And the higher that number goes, the more definitive you, the more confident you can conclude that you have in fact uh, insulin resistance. Yeah, so, so that's sort of the poor man's method, yep. but it is surprisingly accurate. And, and Ben, obviously, you know, if, if that's the case for an individual, then you know, getting into adopting a lower carb diet, losing weight, are our strategies that are, from a nutrition standpoint, going to be effective. If again we circle back to exercise, whether it's what we know around aerobic training for glucose control, or is it you know hit type training, you know, is there a strategy that's more favored, or is it simply around just trying to get people to move more and more regularly? Yeah, yeah. So in fact, I will say that what you just ended with, that that thought there, I think it is maybe important enough that I'll start with it and say that to me, the most important exercise is the one you'll do. Um, You know what I mean? There's just a practical component to it. So just do something. Um, And on the lower end of activity, there's a study to show that, um, and I I cite this in my book, that on on the lower end, like on kind of an hour to two hours a week, um, minute for minute, it appears that resistance training actually has a better effect than aerobic training. And that could just touch on the kind of heavy-duty effect of, of really focusing on building muscle. As you're building muscle, you do increase the, the, the muscle's ability to pull in and use glucose. But as the time starts to expand, you know, someone's spending more and more time, that difference starts to wash away to the point that we can just say, there's, there appears to be no real difference, but I, I do believe intensity matters. Whether it is a resistance exercise or an aerobic exercise, intensity matters. As a person is building up their capacity to exercise, which, of course, can take some time, especially the older we get, they ought to be um, not content with continuing to do the same thing again and again as that gets easier and easier as the body adapts. You should increase the intensity, challenge it, so that that activity stays difficult. Yeah, such a great point. I mean, uh, intensity, especially when you're unfit, the nice part is you don't need that big a challenge to create the intensity as well. So yeah. it's a really great way to, to try to hit the stairs or, um, you know, carry something heavy for a distance, you know, bring the groceries back home by hand, walking, what whatnot, um, you know, all those little things that actually can add up are pretty good for folks before they actually start you know, deciding to get into the gym or more intense resistance training. But 
Ben, I could I could pick your brain here all day, but I want to respect your time. Um, you know, fantastic book, Why We Get Sick. It was just, you know, loads of notes I've been making throughout. It's it's definitely one of those books you want to keep coming back to the different passages. Can you, um, you know, folks want to keep in touch with your work, um, you know, where's the best place to stay connected with you and, and where can they pick up the book? Yeah. Hey, Mark. Hey, listen, seriously, thanks again for contacting me. I, I meant what I said. It really is always fun for me to connect with a fellow Canadian. Nice. Uh, I uh, the book is available anywhere books are sold. I, I think that even includes the UK. Frankly, yeah. um, Amazon is a, an easy one, of course. And I, I genuinely appreciate uh, people getting it. I, I do think it's it's a message that is really uh, close to my heart. That insulin resistance needs to become part of the conversation that we're having with regards to our health. Um, and then beyond that, uh, I'm, I'm fairly active on social media, never as active as I want to be, but that also means I am able to give a lot of time to my family, which is my priority. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm fairly active, mostly actually on Instagram and, and then Twitter, less or so. But uh, whether it's those two or Facebook, uh, people can find me at Ben Bickman, PhD, and that's Bickman, no C, just B-I-K-M-A-N. And uh, all I do is share insight into metabolic health. I, I don't, I'm not posting pictures of myself doing anything. It's just me sharing the, the latest or, or some relevant metabolic research with regards to human metabolism. And then I one last thing, I, I'll start contributing more and more content to this, but people can um, go to a website called Get Health, and that spell, health is spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com. And actually, to, to, at the risk of kind of sounding like a shill here, um, you can learn about a, a shake, a meal replacement shake that I developed with a couple of my brothers. So it's a little family business. Nice. Um, where it's it's high carb, uh, sorry, high fat, high protein, which is the most anabolic mix. Too much of what people do with meal replacement or protein shakes, they just focus on the protein, or at worst, they put the protein with carbs, which is not an optimal combination. I challenge that because of the human data supporting it. And we had this one-to-one by mass balance of protein and fat with very minimal carbs um, with some other extras thrown in. Anyway, people can learn more about it uh, at, at that website. I'll, I'll stop there. But yeah, those are the ways to connect with me. Uh, again, Mark, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for reaching out. And I, I hope that this has been some valuable time for your listeners. A hundred percent, Ben. And we'll uh, definitely include all those links in the show notes. And again, appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this terrific episode. If you did, please share with one or two of your friends or colleagues and support the show by subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Until next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bob's Performance Podcasts.